President John F. Kennedy called for a man to be sent to the moon by the end of the 1960s. That sounded all well and good, but how was NASA to implement such a seemingly impossible feat, particularly when the agency itself was besotted with hierarchical restrictions and groupthink mentality that nearly destroyed the only man with a suitable plan to achieve it? I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. Oh, 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 oh. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. We meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear. The eyes of the world now look into space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. This is Apollo Control at 102 hours into the flight of Apollo 11. It's grown quite quiet here at Mission Control. A few moments ago, Flight Director Gene Kranz uh, requested that everyone sit down, get prepared for events that are coming. And he closed with the remark, good luck to all of you. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. My guest is Todd Zwillick. You may know him best as a regular voice on NPR's 1A program. Todd has lived in Washington, D.C. for some years and is a noted political journalist. And of late, he has turned his attention elsewhere. You see, he is the author and narrator of an audible original work entitled The Man Who Knew the Way to the Moon. Now, 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 stop right there. (laughs) Please stop. It's not probably what you think. It's not about Neil Armstrong, nor is it about Buzz Aldrin and the like. No, it's about perhaps the most important mind to have been found in the entire space program of the 1960s. It is the account of John Holbert, a poor boy who grew up in Illinois with a fondness for aircraft. In fact, he studied aeronautical engineering at that fair state's university, particularly the Urbana-Champaign campus. After graduating, John Holbert made his way through various firms and corporations, but eventually found himself working for NASA. Big deal, you may be thinking. Not another show on the space program. We've been inundated with them. Well, in candor, I sympathize. But this show is a big deal, because it addresses perhaps the biggest deal of the entire series of moon missions, and that is John Holbert himself. You see, John Holbert revolutionized the thinking at NASA, but it didn't come without great personal cost to him, both mentally, emotionally, and professionally. As we have seen throughout history, when one goes against conventional thinking, they are often ostracized, ridiculed, and rejected. And John Holbert experienced all three. Yet it was his perseverance that made it possible for the United States to place its flag on the lunar surface and to cause the world to watch America and marvel at its ingenuity. Todd Swillick, welcome to Watching America. I have to begin by, by mentioning something. You said regarding this work elsewhere that one doesn't have to, to be a space geek to enjoy this work, and I completely agree. However, let me ask at the outset, were you a space geek? Oh, yes, and it's really what got me into the room for the story in the first place. I've I've been a space geek and a little sort of JV space historian my whole life, as many young people are. 
Um, and it was sort of as around, you know, interest for the Apollo 50th started to build. But for me, that excitement started to build like a year and a half ago. People start talking more about a return to the moon. And I happened to pick up the book behind the movie First Man, which was the Neil Armstrong authorized biography written by a wonderful historian in Alabama named James Hansen. Mm. Um, Hansen is a big part of my story. I spoke to him for this story. And, and I, I read this Armstrong book. It was wonderful. And it kind of turned me on to a couple of facts, many things I didn't know, and poking around and looking some of the history of Apollo. And as I looked, you know, I, I kept seeing this name. This name keeps flashing by. You look into the history of Apollo, the early history of Apollo, and you keep seeing this name. It might be just a paragraph. It might be just half a page. It might be just a moment in some moon documentary for 42 seconds, and the name is John Hobel. And you keep seeing him, but you never learn very much about him. He's like this footnote. Who is this guy? Why does he keep getting mentioned? And it's just this fleeting reference. I mean, most engineers in the NASA program never get mentioned at all. If you're not an astronaut, really, unless you're a famous flight controller, really nobody remembers you. But Hobolt gets mentioned, and then that's it, just this brief mention. And I started to look into it a little bit, and I started to read something else that Jim Hansen wrote from the 1990s, which was a, a history of, of Hobolt's story from, from a sort of from an inside NASA kind of kind of bureaucratic perspective, almost like a, like, like a monograph history that he wrote, kind of a, a very good and informative, but a bit of a dry work. And this got me very interested in Hobolt's story. And I started to think, oh, there's, there's much, much more here. And it wasn't until I started to peel that apart that I realized, oh, there's so much more. Not only Hobolt's battles within NASA, his fights with others, the way he was treated, but the way it stuck with him for many, many years after the success of Apollo. And as you said, the, the, the emotional, uh, and as you said, the emotional and, and personal cost to him. Well, let's back up historically very, very briefly. I'm just going to go through um, major advances, and then I'm going to toss it back to you and let you pick up from where we leave off. Okay. Galileo, 1610. Uh, first telescope. By 1813, we have William Moore, who proposes the, the concept of rocket equation. By 1863, we have a Scot, uh, William Leach, who uh, comes up with the idea of the rocket space uh, flight being uh, conceivable. By 1914, we turn to Americans, and Robert H. Goddard uh, comes up with the idea of fueled rocketeering, if you will. And then the Germans come into the scene just prior to World War II, 1933, the V-2 rocket. Then we go to the U.S. again, 1946, the USA has fruit flies, the first living creatures that are sent into outer space. The USSR is not to be outdone, so they send a dog into space in 1951. By 1957, they have the first satellite, as we all know, Sputnik 1. And then, by 1961, they have their first cosmonaut sent into space, Yuri Gagarin. Now, thereafter comes JFK on the scene. And what I find particularly interesting is, really, it's a story, in a sense, about two men, one on a large scale with, obviously, a bully pulpit, uh, and somebody on a much smaller scale, but working behind the scenes to bring to fruition the very thing that the president wants. Tell us about that. Yes, indeed. And, and to start this story, you know, we could start in 1959. We could start in 1960, sort of just as the space race in the Cold War starts to ramp up. The Russians beat us into space with Sputnik, and that's really, in effect, where John Hobolt's story begins. But since you listed this long human history of space observation and space travel, let me give you one name that you didn't use, uh, Yuri Kondratyuk, who is a Ukrainian scientist, 1919, uh, one of uh, several people largely credited with the first concepts, early concepts, of course, in 1919. We had never been into space, of course. But the idea of sending a craft into orbit around a body, into orbit around the moon so that you could land there, the, the genesis and the germs of this idea actually go back decades before NASA ever existed or before the Russians ever beat us into space. So you can really take this all the way back to Galileo, as you did, if you like, but you can really take it to sort of 1919, the 1920s, and in some cases even earlier for physicists and early theorists in Ukraine and Russia talking about the, the, the possibility of using rendezvous to land on the moon one day. But John's story. Uh, John is at NASA in the late 50s and early 60s, and the Russians have beaten us into space, and 
they're starting to theorize in the back rooms at NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia, about how they might one day go to the moon. Let's call it 1960. These engineers know that manned spaceflight is on the cusp. They're busy developing Project Mercury. They're going to send an American into space. They hope to beat the Russians there. Everybody knows it's coming. Moon travel, there's no plan for this. There is no Project Apollo. It doesn't exist. Uh, But they know that maybe they might want to shoot for the moon one day. So they're talking about it. They have lots of meetings. They knock around ideas. They're throwing pencils off the walls and talking about how to go to the moon. And it's amid these discussions that John becomes part of the debate. Now, he you have to understand, he was an aeronautical engineer. He was an airplane guy. He specialized in airplane fuselages and, and runways and things like that. He was not part of the space travel hierarchy or the structure. That was a group at NASA Langley called the Space Task Group. Those were the people who were building the Mercury capsule and training the the early astronauts and trying to beat the Russians into space. John was not part of that. He was at Langley, but he's sort of off to the side. And the reason John got into the room in the first place was that he had made himself an expert in the concept of rendezvous and orbital trajectories. He knew the math. And John was sort of a sort of a self-taught savant in this area. So he got a foot in the room because he was smart enough and the space race was on. And even though he wasn't part of the space hierarchy, if you had a good idea and you could speak the language, they wanted the ideas from anywhere they could get them. Well, in these early days, you know, it's fascinating to look back at what the leading ideas were for going to the moon one day. <laughs> After all the decades of history, some of them are like, shockingly quaint. You know, the, 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 the main competing concept to go to the moon in 1960 is really this sort of this Jules Verne version of moon travel. Launch a gigantic rocket toward the moon, stage off a couple pieces, and then take about a 100 or 120 foot tall rocket with legs and back it down, you know, butt first onto mm. the surface of the moon. And, and that's the way the old movies were, the old silent films or Jules Verne stories. And you think about it now, yes, yeah, SpaceX can do it now with computerized boosters, but this is 1960. How dangerous. But this was the leading idea, and they took it very, very seriously. And here comes John, who has made himself a, a self-styled expert in rendezvous and orbits. And he says, that's not going to work. A bunch of guys I know here at Langley have been working on another concept. They've been working on this lunar orbit rendezvous concept. Now, John did not invent this idea. He never claimed to have invented this idea. But he grabbed this idea, and he refined this idea, and he worked on this idea, and he honed it, and he became a campaigner for it. And he says, why are you guys trying to land a giant 150, 100-foot-tall rocket down on the moon? Why are you carrying all that weight and all of that fuel to the lunar surface. Why are you parking astronauts in the nose cone of a rocket where they won't be able to drive it, they won't be able to see? I've got a different idea. Why don't you leave all of that weight, all of that mass, and all of that fuel that you need for the return trip home? Leave it in orbit. Orbit it around the moon. Take a very small, lightweight craft down to the moon and back up. Do your exploring. And you can leave all the heavy stuff in orbit. And if you want to understand the concept in the simplest terms, I put it like this. If you're exploring the new world, let's say, and you're a, you're a mariner, you're a seafaring explorer, and you take a big ship across the ocean and you get to your destination, best not to drive your sailing ship right up onto the shore. You're going to hit rocks. You're going to hit tides. You're going to wash up on the shoals quite literally and damage your ship, and it will be very difficult to push off again to get home. Why not park it offshore and take a rowboat? This was the center of John's arguments in those early days. We're talking 1960. He said, don't use the big direct approach. Use this rendezvous approach, and and I can show you how to make it happen. Now, he's going against groupthink of the time. And he's uh, politicking in the halls, so to speak, for his, his proposal and using this. What actually goes on? What, what are the encounters that he has as far as being in a boardroom versus talking over the water cooler? Yeah, well, well th- th- this is one of the fascinating and, and bewildering parts of the story. Um, like in any organization, John was, like I said, an outsider in terms of the space hierarchy. So maybe it made some sense that people participating groupthink might have thought, well, we, we like our ideas. Thanks, Hobolt, for, for 
for yours, but we're going to go this other direction. But John was fairly relentless. John was fairly um, unwaverable. And if you want to sum up what his interactions were like as he was campaigning, um, at times he was politely dismissed. At times he was ignored. And at times he was downright abused, abused by his colleagues. And I'll give you one example, and this goes back to December of 1960. Again, this is, this is a year and a half before John F. Kennedy even challenges America to go to the moon. This is before Yuri Gagarin has ever flown or Alan Shepard has ever flown. It hasn't happened yet. We haven't even been into space. Here's John at, at, a, at a fairly high-level meeting at NASA, again, on the concepts for one day going to the moon. And it's not just the junior and mid-level engineers this time. There are top leaders there, uh, leaders at NASA, including famous people like Werner von Braun, uh, who ran the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, the father of the Saturn V, the father of the Redstone rocket that would take Mercury astronauts into space in a short while. And proponents of these different modes are giving their presentations, just a bunch of engineers, uh, direct ascent, the, the, the mode I mentioned, take the big rocket directly to the moon, land it, land it uh, legs first, Earth orbit rendezvous, let's assemble it in space and then fly it and land it butt first on the moon. And then Hobolt gets up because he's an expert in orbits, and he talks about rendezvous, about how to merge two spacecraft in orbit and what that takes at, you know, 15,000 miles an hour. Then he drops in a pitch for lunar orbit rendezvous, December of 1960. He says, don't take all that mass to the moon. Take a, take a lightweight ship down to the moon, rendezvous in lunar orbit and come home. And if you do that, I can save you 50% of the mass that you need to build. I can save you 50% of the weight that you need to launch from the Earth, and you can build a much simpler rocket. Hey, I can make this a lot easier on everyone and probably a lot cheaper. Well, seems like a good enough argument. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. Well, at this moment, uh, another very well-known engineer, a guy named Max Faget, who worked at Langley. Faget was a brilliant engineer. He would go on to be famous in space travel circles. He would go on to design the Mercury capsule. He was designing at that moment. He would go, go on to design the space shuttle. Uh, Max Faget hears John's presentation and stands up in front of everyone, in front of NASA leaders, in front of Werner von Braun, and he pounds his fist on the table. He says, don't listen to Hobolt. Don't listen to him. His figures lie. And Fajay storms out of the room, and the argument spills into the hallway. Bob Siemens, the deputy administrator of NASA, calls a break at this moment, says, I think we all need to cool off. And the argument spills out into the hallway. He called John a liar in front of all of his colleagues. John was humiliated by this. And, and I can tell you, from following his career, following his speeches, speaking to his wife, and speaking to people around him, he never forgot it. He was 41 or 42 years old when this thing happened. He never forgot it for the rest of his life. You've made reference to one of the most interesting people, I think, uh, who, besides a largely unnoted man, uh, is unnoted herself, and that is his wife. You spoke with his wife. I'd like to know very much what was going on domestically behind the scenes. Did he have children? How were the children responding to daddy coming home um, looking less than, than, than content? What was going on in the home life? Well, Mary Hobolt, uh, known as Mary Morris before they got married, is a fascinating figure herself. Um, Mary came to Hampton, Virginia in 1946, one year post-college. She was a human computer in the Structures Lab at Langley, similar to the hidden figures who are now famous. Mary was there a little bit before them, and that's how she and John met. She was a human computer crunching numbers on aircraft designs and aeronautical and aerospace uh, equations. She and John met. She gave it all up to get married and have a family, because she explained to me that's just the way we thought in those days. That's just how it was done. Uh, Mary was brilliant at math herself, and she loved the world of engineers. She talked to me about what it was like when she and John met in Hampton when he was living in a sort of glorified frat house called Club 55 at 55 Cherokee Road, kind of in the south end of what I guess today is called uh, Armstrong Gardens in Hampton, uh, right, right up the street from the water, in fact. Um, and what life was like for these young, kind of post-war, freewheeling kids in their 20s, young engineers at NASA and human computers, and they partied a lot and drank a lot of beer and loved to sail, and they were all very, very smart people, men and women alike. Um, then once they were married, you know, during these times, here's a fascinating and, and confusing part of the story. 
you ask, what was it like when, when John was experiencing these things at work and then coming home to Mary and, and their three daughters? And, mm. um, you know, Mary knew nothing of it at the time. Wow. Um, he, he did not discuss work with her at all. And he didn't discuss it with her then. He didn't discuss it with her years later when NASA chose his mode and chose Lunar Orbit Rendezvous as the mode to go to the moon after all of the abuse and all of the fights and all of the campaigning and and some very bold moves that John took on. John risked his career for this at a certain point. Mary knew none of it. Mary found out about it after they had already left Hampton. Mary found out about it in 1963. She tells me a story. They had moved to Princeton, New Jersey when John took a job at a private aerospace consulting firm in 1963. And some friends were visiting from Hampton, some, some friends of theirs who they had known from way back, and, and Sue, uh, Mary's friend, and they were out shopping for the day, and they came home, and John and his buddy were in the living room because they spent the day together, and there were a couple of men in the living room with them, and they were all having drinks, and mm-hmm. Mary says, I don't know who these, who these guys are. She gets introduced to them. Turns out it's two reporters from Time Magazine. Time Magazine in 1963 was a big deal, yes. about as big as it got. Everybody right. subscribed. Everybody read. Well, why are these two reporters in my living room? They're talking to John about lunar orbit rendezvous. It's how NASA's going to go to the moon. It was the first she had heard of it. He never told her. Um, and I think that that hurt her. She told me that that hurt her. She accepted many things about John. Uh, he was very traditional. She said John was a chauvinist, just like his Dutch father. No two ways about it. She loved him very much. He had many, many good qualities, but she told me that. Um, and she said this was just his way. He did not talk about work, uh, except in little spurts at times he would say if something bothered him. But that was the first she'd heard of it after, from John's perspective, it was all over. Now, the risk of playing armchair analyst, which is always a very dubious pursuit, but uh, was he emotionally repressed uh, by his parents? I mean, we do know that he grew up rather poor, as you've indicated. He grew up in Illinois. Uh, Dutch parents, or Dutch father, at least, as you've indicated. Was it a repressive environment for him? I, I don't know, and I don't know that I would describe it as repressed. I have a very narrow window into this, and I can give you a little bit of insight from what I learned from family members. Uh, John's father, Jan, came to this country when he was 16 from Holland, right through Ellis Island, became a, uh, became a tenant farmer, worked on a seed farm in Iowa. He was described to me as very stern, very mm. humorless, a very, very serious a stern man. John's mother was also a Dutch immigrant. They they came separately to America but got married here and she was described to me as sweet as can be, warm and fuzzy, a loving, loving mother. Um, they were extremely poor when John was a boy. Uh, they were tenant farmers. Once they moved to Illinois, John worked on the farm as a boy and he hated it. He did not want to be there, but he had nothing. They didn't have plumbing. They had an outhouse. He tended to horses. He wanted off that farm and every bit of progress he made off that farm was self-gotten, I can tell you. He uh, worked hard at school. He went to Joliet Junior College in, in his neighborhood there in Joliet, Illinois, for free. Scholarship to the University of Illinois. Later would use uh, fellowship grants to get his Ph.D. Uh, nobody had anything to give him, hmm. ever. Um, was he repressed? I, uh, it, it's hard to say. I, I can tell you from talking to Mary... Uh, and talking to some of John's relatives and, and hearing John speak for himself in some tapes and some videos th- that I found. I don't know that he had a great deal of emotional range. Mm-hmm. He seemed not to discuss things that upset him. He seemed to carry, he really seemed to carry some of these hurts and slights without really being able to express them. And, and I did mention to Mary at one point in a later conversation after we had spoken for the book, um, you know, maybe if John had been able to express himself to you or, God forbid, to a therapist, you know, in, yeah, in the right. 1960s, yeah. which maybe wasn't done. But, you know, if John had found a way to express himself about the way he felt about the way colleagues treated him, about the way he felt about the fact that, that some of them tried to rob him of credit or how badly he wanted credit and why this was so important to him, maybe he would have had an easier time emotionally later in life. 
This is a, an era we think of mentally of, you know, images of slide rulers and pencil pocket holders and crew cuts and what have you. Uh, given the, the, the era itself, do you suppose that he just took on the, 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 the basic stance of like, well, this is masculinity. Masculinity requires that one does not disclose feelings or emotions, uh, what have you. Was there any outlet for the man? Did he have a hobby uh, or fishing or anything that he could do that would allow some kind of cathartic experience for him to channel his frustrations and hurt? Oh, yes. Well, I like to say that in this era, and especially at NASA, that conformity was a professional sport. I mean, these were these were conformists. Well said. Yeah. NASA was a quasi-military organization, and it was very much... Look, it's a little quaint to get into the idea of short sleeve white shirts and pocket protectors and black glasses. Right. Uh, and, and high, tight haircuts. But it's not far from the truth. Yes. And forget about the images. This is the way people treated each other in the hierarchy, which does make some of what John did later... Uh, even more amazing when he broke the hierarchy. But did John have outlets? He did, and some of them were extraordinarily healthy. I mean, John had friends. John had a social life. John loved to sail. His passion, uh, even from the moments when he and Mary met when they were young in Hampton, was uh, sailing. He had a Hampton One design, a 21-foot model that was developed by a guy down the street when they lived uh, at 55 Cherokee Lane at Club 55. These young engineers were all sailors. And I think the concept of sailing and designing their own hulls and their own keels was a lot like aircraft design. They understood aeronautics. They understood airplane wings. So they understood sailboats, and they understood the keels. Um, They all loved to sail. They did it all the time, and it was a love that John held on to until he couldn't do anything anymore. I mean, he retired to Maine so that he could be near the water. He and Mary owned more than one sailboat throughout throughout their lives. And in fact, sailing is how they met. It's where they went on their first date. They met at work at Langley, as I mentioned, she a computer and he a young engineer. But Mary told me about their very first date out on the water in Hampton, a group date where everyone went sailing, and it was 95 degrees out, a stultifying, sticky night in Virginia. Everybody was hot. It was getting late. They were out there on the water at midnight, which was stupid. They didn't have any running lights on the boat. She admits it was a very dumb thing to do. They were probably drinking, although she didn't (laughs) And at one point, at one point, um, Mary says, oh, if if I had two cents, I'd jump in the water right now. And at this moment, a, a, a hand appears from around behind her and is holding two pennies. This <laughs> so, is John and so cinematic. Right it's so and cinematic. And that's how they met. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I can see the miniseries already. Um, wow. <laughs> this is Watching America. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'm delighted to have a colleague of sort with NPR uh, joining us today, and that is Todd Zwillick, who has worked on a piece, an audible original work at that, entitled The Man Who Knew the Way to the Moon. It is an examination of the life of John Hobart. I must ask you uh, regarding when did the tide turn for John? When when did the, the, the beginning cycles seem to indicate that he is going to be victorious, he is going to be honored, he is going to be acknowledged? Mm. Well, the, his, his victory came long before he was ever truly acknowledged. Those are sort of two separate things, which also informs a bit of John's personality. But take us back now to 1961, springtime. Yuri Gagarin goes to space. The Russians beat us into orbit. What a big deal. Just a couple of weeks later, Alan Shepard flies uh, in the spring of 1961. America has its man in space. Well, right after Alan Shepard flies, um, John F. Kennedy, the president, who was, by the way, not terribly moved by Gagarin's success and the Soviet success, Kennedy really had to be convinced by his advisors that this was a huge deal and a major propaganda loss for the United States. Oh, and by the way, the Russian rocket technology is far superior to ours. We may have better bombs, but they have better delivery. 
Mr. President. The fact that they got a man into orbit means they can launch bigger payloads into orbit, and you better get serious mm. about beating them. Mm. Just 17 days after Alan Shepard flies, John F. Kennedy is in front of the Congress, and you already know the famous quote, I believe the nation should commit itself before the decade is out to flying a man to the moon and returning safely to the earth. That's a paraphrase. In John's world, the timing couldn't have been better. Uh, John is busy in the spring of 1961. He's still trying to go to these meetings. He's knocking on doors. He's putting his foot in doors. He's being listened to in some places, but not really getting anywhere. He's being uninvited in other places and getting absolutely nowhere. And in some places, he's being humiliated, not by mean people, but by engineers who are voting on various modes to go to the moon. And they're not taking his idea seriously. He's finishing third place. He's finishing fourth place just behind other ideas that are so cockamamie that they're there just as placeholders. And John is, is barely even showing up in the voting among his colleagues for these ideas. He's getting extraordinarily frustrated. Well, for NASA, when Kennedy makes the moon challenge, all of a sudden things have to solidify. Now all of these fights and blackboard drawings and sketches and theoretical ideas amongst all these <laughs> uh, amongst all these pocket protector wearing engineers in the back rooms of NASA all of a sudden they have to get real and do it by the end of the decade so everything's revisited everything is solidified and accelerated this is an opening for John in the spring of 1961. And he spends that summer campaigning. He has a handout that he called the Admiral Sheet, and it had all of his engineering diagrams and calculations and tables and engineering speak that he would hand out sort of like a, like a handbill on 8th Avenue in New York, if you like. And he would hand them out to other engineers or other people in meetings to give them a bit of a, a take-home sheet that they could refer to his work uh, when they weren't talking to him. He's still campaigning. And you know, He's still getting nowhere. He's getting nowhere. He's getting voted down in committee. The groupthink, from his perspective, is still prevailing, except he knows he's right. He knows he's right. He's done the calculations, and he knows it. Now, here's one of the main problems that he's confronting. Uh, yes, groupthink. Yes, some people just don't like him. Maybe Max Fichet didn't like him. Maybe that's why he called him a liar. Maybe the guy didn't like him. And I, and I do have documentation. There were people at NASA who didn't like John. Again, he had friends, but he also had enemies. <laughs> so um, Was that because he was considered too abrasive? I, 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 I don't know. I, I think he was considered abrasive. I think he was considered arrogant at times. I think he was considered a self-promoter. It's also hard to know how people felt about him in the moment versus in retrospect after these fights were over, you know. But here's another example from the engineering side of, of, of why people were turned off to John's idea. John's idea required landing the light craft on the moon. But then to get home, you have to do the rendezvous in lunar orbit. Bring the ship back up, rendezvous with the mothership around the moon, and head home. That's the, that's the core of the concept. Rendezvous had never been tried, and there were engineers on hand at the time who gave interviews later to NASA historians and others documented who said that this idea terrified them, uh, terrified them in the sense that if they get it wrong, you get one chance to get a rendezvous right, and if you get it wrong, we're going to strand astronauts, we're going to kill them out there, we're going to leave them marooned in space, and we're going to be to blame for it. Mm. Um, you know, rendezvous is a, is a deceptively violent procedure. When you look at it on film, it looks extremely graceful and two craft flying in formation and they're floating in space. It is wonderful to see, but they are careening through space at seven, eight, nine, ten thousand miles an hour. You are hitting a bullet with a bullet. It had never been tried in Earth orbit. It wouldn't be tried until 1966. Here's Hobolt coming in sideways saying, you know what we should do? We should do it 250,000 miles, uh, miles away around the moon. And that terrified some of them. This is the late summer. This is the early fall of 1961. NASA has been challenged by the president to go to the moon, and John is still getting nowhere because of groupthink, because of personal animosity, because of fear. And then he does something that he is known for, something that he's known for to this day throughout NASA, and something that really you can point to as the turning point. Uh, John gets so frustrated and so angered by this confluence of forces against him that he decides to break ranks in this famously conformist organization. And instead of knocking on the door of his supervisor down the hall or even going to the boss of Langley, John 
types up a nine-page grievance letter. Um, it's it's engineering grievance. It's not that personal. I mean, mm-hmm. he does call some people stupid in it for sure. Uh, but it's literally stupid. Grievance. I mean, does he does he articulate that and say stupid? Yes, he criticizes stupid thinking and okay. the stupidity of 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 the thinking that's going on. So he doesn't single out a person as being mm-hmm. stupid, but he criticizes stupid thinking. He types up a nine-page letter full of engineering grievance. He attaches a 100-page report on lunar orbit rendezvous that he and his colleagues at Langley had drawn up because they were getting nowhere in these various committees, and they wanted to put all of their calculations um, in, a, in, a, in a solid compendium. He sends the whole package, again, not to his supervisor or the boss at Langley. He sends it gosh, six, seven levels above his own head. He sends it to the deputy administrator of NASA, Bob Siemens. I mentioned him before. Bob Siemens was the guy who cleared the room after Max Faget called John a liar the year before. He said, let's take a break. Well, Bob Siemens was an extremely senior person. He had a major leadership role in, um, in the executive suite at NASA headquarters in Washington. And John sends him this letter. And it basically says, um, actually, this is a quote. Do we want to get to the moon or not? That's the quote. <laughs> he says, do you want to get to the moon or not? He also says, look, I realize that you don't know me. I realize that I'm coming in from left field. He calls himself a voice in the wilderness. He says, you might feel as though you're hearing from a crank. Now, that's a biblical term, a biblical phrase. He's invoking John the Baptist. That's really interesting. And, and, and he, he rhetorically grabs Siemens by the lapels and says, do you want to get to the moon or not? The thinking is all wrong. I am troubled by the groupthink that's going on. You will never be able to build a rocket big enough to get to the moon with direct ascent. I can get you to the moon if we use lunar orbit rendezvous. You can do it with a smaller Saturn vehicle. By, by this time, the idea of the Saturn V that Von Braun mm-hmm. would build, mm-hmm. that was beginning to solidify. That was on the drawing board. Everyone knew about it. He says, I can get you to the moon with a Saturn V rocket, I can get you there cheaper and quicker, but you have to listen. No one is listening. No one is listening, Siemens, and he sends this way up the chain. Well, this thing lands on Siemens' desk, and he has a predictable reaction. Who the hell does this guy think he is? Hobolt. Yes. What's this guy, what, what's it, who, who's this nobody writing? You sending these letters to me? Uh, I'm going to call down to uh, Tommy Thompson, who runs Langley, and tell him to get his people in line. But he had another thought simultaneously to that. Siemens was a brilliant engineer himself, and he was a great leader. Siemens was annoyed by the letter, but Siemens also realized that the arguments they were having were getting them nowhere at NASA. He realized also that the president's challenge was now real. He realized that the theoretical had to become practical. And by the way, he was responsible for making it happen. And so after his first reaction, he said, you know, he's onto something here. Actually, this makes a lot of sense. Actually, we need to look into this. And Siemens turns around to his underlings, his aides, and he says, take this information, take this Hobolt letter, take this minority report, read it, go around NASA and reorganize everyone's thinking. He didn't endorse the idea. Siemens didn't say this is the idea. He said, what are we missing? What Mm. are we missing? Use this information, go to everyone, find out what we're missing. And this right here, is the colonel. This is the beginning of when the tide turns in John's favor, because when Siemens underlings get to this task of figuring out what's going right and what's going wrong, more than just Bob Siemens start to realize that the small lunar lander, uh, the lunar orbit rendezvous, uh, is really, by the end of the decade, the only way to do it. Now, is the relationship between Siemens and Holbolt unimpaired for the remainder of their duration together, or are there still wrinkles between them as the years ensue? Uh, no, it, it's, it's fascinating. Um, they, they didn't have much of a relationship. Bob Siemens, by all accounts, and I've talked to people who knew him even later in his career, uh, he was a revered, much beloved person at NASA, at MIT, where he was before and after. Uh, I've spoken to mentees and colleagues of his. Um, what's interesting, though, about the way Siemens reacted to the letter, he did at first think, who the hell does Hobolt think he is? But he also remembered that the year before, in September of 1960, that he had met John Hobolt. And here's why. Siemens was new on the job as the deputy administrator of NASA. 
uh, the associate administrator, pardon me, and he went down to Langley on one of these, you know, leader visits where the big shot comes and everybody mm-hmm. straightens their ties and, sh- and shows them what they've been up to. Right. And he remembered a couple of things from that visit. You know, later on when Siemens was talking about the history of this, you know, many years later, he said, I remember that day going down to Langley because, because a young, dashing John Glenn showed me the inside of a mercury capsule. <laughs> That's something you'd remember. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, people are yeah. coming up to him. They're trying to impress him. Here's what I'm working on. Here's what I'm working on. Please be impressed with me. Right. You know, Mr. Boss Man. He meets John Hobolt, and this guy buttonholes him, this guy he's never met before, mm-hmm. and starts to talk in his face about lunar orbit rendezvous. We're talking about September of 1960. And Siemens was receptive to the idea. Siemens was also uh, a, a budding expert in the idea of rendezvous. It had never been tried. But theoretically, he had been at MIT and at RCA Corporation working on the concept of intercepting satellites. So when this nobody Hobel came up to him and started talking in engineering speak about conservation of energy and the orbits and the trajectories and lunar orbit rendezvous, Siemens, they were speaking the same language. They vibed. They weren't buddies, but they vibed. And so when Hobolt's package thunks down on Siemens' desk in November of 1961, the following year, he goes, oh, yeah, that guy. I remember him, right. the orbit guy, the rendezvous guy. Yeah, we kind of vibed. And, and later in his career, um, when the struggle for credit was on, Siemens did give John credit. And I, and I will say this also. Um, John writes this letter, this memo, in November of 1961. That starts to turn the tide, as I mentioned. It's the following summer um, in uh, July of 1962. When NASA does choose Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, Bob Siemens does give John Hobolt very public credit in front of the press. The day the decision is announced, we're going to the moon, and this is how we're going to do it. It's going to be the lunar module. It's going to be nice. Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. He gives credit to John Hobolt of Langley. Uh, he mentions to the press the day he met John Hobolt. Um, so in John's eyes, Siemens was probably one of the good guys. Why? because he gave John credit, because he recognized him in front of others. This was something, I have to tell you, that that was fairly important to John. So it was at least slightly redemptive for him. Oh, yes, I think it was. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, only slightly, because there were other slights later in his career that he considered much more hurtful, and and even slights um, right up until that moment uh, before... Siemens recognized him. I mean, several months had passed after Siemens underlings start to go around NASA to solidify the thinking. People are starting to realize that Hobolt may be right. Max Faget himself, the one who called him a liar, is busy at this moment at Langley in the space task group trying to design lunar landing concepts. He's got the big rockets. He's got the direct ascent. How are we going to solve the landing problem with all of this fuel and all of this mass and the astronauts can't see the surface? How are they going to land it if they can't see the boulders and the rocks and the chasms? None of this is working. Faget is starting to realize that you need a short, lightweight, small, maneuverable lander where astronauts can see out of the windows and see what's in front of them. By the spring of 1962, just weeks, by June of 1962, weeks before a final decision is made, um, really a consensus at this point has developed. Um, Top engineers, including Werner von Braun, have become convinced that the lunar orbit rendezvous concept is the way to go to the moon. And John told a story later in life, um, and it's in my book, where right around this time, before the final decision has been made, he's in NASA headquarters on what he called other matters. He wasn't there on the lunar orbit rendezvous piece. He also had his aeronautical airplane responsibilities. And he saw a couple guys in the hallway who he knew from the debates, and he said, what are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, Hobolt, don't you know we're in here preparing the final presentation for NASA leadership, for Siemens, on our decision to endorse Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. (laughs) And he says, oh, well, shouldn't I be in there? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Think about this now. He has fought. Insult to injury. Insult to injury. He wasn't even invited. He wasn't even invited to be in the room at the moment that the idea that he had crusaded for for two years. And by the way, everybody knew it. Everybody, whether they loved him or they hated him, they all knew that Hobolt was the LOR guy. He wasn't even invited to be there. Um, That would hurt me. That would hurt Mm, any of us. And it particularly hurt John. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and it is my utter delight to have Todd Zwillick join us. You may know him mostly from his NPR program, 1A, out of Washington, D.C. He has written a, a delightful and enthralling work called The Man Who Knew the Way to the Moon, but it's actually a name that most people are not readily familiar with, and the name is John Holbert, who was a NASA engineer responsible for the concept of having, if you will, a break part system of thrust and machinery to take into space with orbiting uh, rendezvousing up between two parts of the spacecrafts, mainly the lunar module and what used to be called Snoopy. Did you encounter that term uh, being used in your research? Oh, yes. Well, Snoopy was the name. Each of the craft had call signs in each of the missions, right? So right. in Apollo 11, the lunar module was called Eagle, uh, there was a the command module was called Columbia. There was a Yankee Clipper. Um, they, they all had different names in the different missions. And Snoopy, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Somebody email me. Snoopy <laughs> was the name of the lunar module. I want to say in Apollo 10. Apollo 10 was the dress rehearsal mission, which, by the way, was nearly a disaster. It was the first time they tried a lunar rendezvous. They didn't go all the way to the lunar surface. They separated the command module and the lunar module, took the lunar module down to 50,000 feet, and then came back up to simulate a rendezvous. They spun out of control. Gene Cernan was, uh, was, the, uh, was the pilot on that, um, and Jim Stafford was the, was the other um, command module astronaut. The, air, the spacecraft spun out of control. They nearly lost it. They got it back under control. Um, I tell this whole story. I hope that Snoopy was Apollo 10, but I think so. And if I mm-hmm. get an email or a tweet to the contrary, uh, somebody will correct me. <laughs> it is. It is. You, you are correct ah. in that. So um, oh, well done. Extremely well done. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to ask you, because you have an obvious affinity that you've developed with John uh, Hobart. Uh, did you visit his gravesite? If there was a gravesite, uh, you got to know his wife quite well and uh, other persons that worked around him. Do you feel this strange attachment, even though you never shook hands and tangibly encountered him? Yeah, I've never visited his grave. I, I, I wasn't. Um, it never occurred to me to do so, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. Um, but um, an attachment, yes, of course. Which is not to say, you know, I've tried to think about what I have liked John in life. I don't know. He doesn't seem like my kind of guy. That's interesting. To be honest. Yeah. But would, wow. would I have would I have respected him and admired him? Oh, of course. I mean, you you just don't know in life what attributes are going to lead to the final result. And I and I repeat, if John hadn't taken it personally, if John had slunked off back to his office to do aircraft designs and testing when he was told to, um, if John hadn't gotten angry when people slighted him or ignored him, or if John hadn't thought that other people around him were being stupid mm-hmm. when they didn't see it his way, it's possible, it's very possible that we would not have made it to the moon at all, much less by 1969. I mean, the people who understand this mission the best, from the historians to the astronauts to the engineers, many of them I spoke to, um, some of them others have spoken to, and I've interviewed them, uh, talk about how vital the lunar orbit rendezvous concept was to the success of the mission. Now, we can't take John out of the story and know what would happen because that's not how history works. But the people who know this mission best feel like without lunar orbit rendezvous, you don't get Apollo 11. And without John, you probably don't get lunar orbit rendezvous. Uh, But no, uh, you know, would I have wanted to hang out with him? I'm not sure. He had Mm -hmm. a sense of humor. Again, he had friends. Um, You know, Mary loved her life around John. They had a great time. They went to costume parties and wore silly costumes. It's so easy to view somebody through a singular lens. John was this angry guy stalking around because people didn't appreciate his ideas. Um, John had a wonderful sense of humor. John fixed everything for his neighbors. He would not let anyone he knew pay for any repairs because he had a skill. He had three daughters who loved him very much, but he also had trouble expressing himself. He also carried a lot of anger. He also carried a lot of hurt and emotional aggression for the people who never recognized him for what he thought he had contributed. And I will say this as well because I don't want to leave it out. John Hobart was recognized 
for his contributions in many circles. Bob Siemens recognized him in front of the press. The world-famous Werner von Braun recognized him on several occasions in front of other people for his contributions. He was covered in Time magazine. He was covered in Life magazine, Life magazine, Mm. in 1969 as one of the three people who, quote, made it happen. That's major recognition. Yes, it is. The question is, why wasn't it enough? It was not enough for him. There were some people in NASA, people he respected, people who were above him and to the side of him, who never gave him that recognition. At times, money was involved, too. There were prizes that he was denied that would have made a huge difference to him financially. Um, He got recognition, but it just wasn't enough for him. And, And that doesn't reflect very well on a person. On the other hand, without that drive, without that need, without that personal need, would he have fought so hard in the first place instead of slinking off to some other high-paying job? He might have. And if he did, maybe you and I aren't sitting here having this conversation. Todd Zwillick, let me feed you a line if you'll grant me that license and have you complete the statement for me, if you're willing. And here it is. By all means. The key thing that the life of John Holbott teaches us is the power of perseverance and confidence in one's abilities. May I go further? Yeah. Uh, John was involved in a pursuit um, that is very fact-based. It's engineering. Um, He had an expertise in the numbers, in calculating, recalculating, and checking your calculations. There was a certain point beyond ego, beyond self-assuredness, beyond anger. There was a point when John knew he was right. And it wasn't because he was arrogant. It was because he was a professional and his calculations showed him that he was right. And if your training, um, if your expertise, if your calculations, as it were, and you don't have to be an engineer, you can be in any walk of life. If your training and your expertise has you convinced that you know you're right, you don't have to steamroll other people. You should go to bat for those ideas. Um, Apollo was very successful. You have to go to bat for those ideas. Um, And many people who know this story best, that's what they credit John Worth, his his perseverance and his confidence, not because of his arrogance or his anger at others, but because he knew his calculations were right. He knew they could get us to the moon by the end of the decade. Um, And the evidence is there. Apollo 11 and the rest of the Apollo missions, six successful landings on the moon and a a seventh mission that was nearly a disaster uh, where NASA had its finest hour and saved their lives. Um, much of it points back to this this perseverance and confidence in his own expertise. And, and I think that's an important lesson for all of us, if nothing else. An ardent conviction. Wonderful. Todd Zwillick, it has been an utter delight to have you on Watching America. I've so enjoyed listening to you many times on 1A. And again, ladies and gentlemen, the work is uh, an audible original work, incidentally, entitled The Man Who Knew the Way to the Moon. It is an examination of the life of NASA engineer John Holbert. I look forward to your next work, whatever it may be, and please come back and visit (laughs) us again. I, I really look forward to that. Thank you immensely. Take Thank care. you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. From outer space to this studio to your ears, you've been listening to Watching America. I'm the series creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Executive producer is Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Marzoni. Watching America is made possible by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.